video now. Excellent. Compassion is born from that faith, that, that life of submission to Christ, that we act on compassion, act on seeing a need, not because it's what the world wants us to do or what we think we're going to get in return, but it's because it's what Christ would have us do naturally. It's what he did. We're supposed to emulate that. They just kind of need somebody to listen to them so that they don't feel so alone. Yeah. Because, you I know, agree. Like, the world's, like, super big, and a lot of times you can feel alone. Compassion looks like a willingness to listen without judgment, to offer a helping hand and provide comfort and encouragement to those in need. It involves being present for someone and showing them that they are not alone in their struggles. We all do. And even I do. We need to be compassionate with ourselves and with each other because... Uh, I think compassion feels a need, and we're all needy people um, on some level. It just um, is a different need that each person has, and you know, a different person has something to offer to each of us. Like asking people like how they're doing, or if like somebody's like by themselves or something, like I would ask them how their day's been or something, like to see if they want to talk about anything or if anything's like bothering them kindness, um, love, generosity, um, giving uh, to those, like I said, less fortunate or even those who, you know, seem that they are fortunate, you know, when they're having a hard time. Um, it's dropping everything at those moments and helping somebody when they're in dire help. But it's dropping everything and being there for, those, for people. All right, so as some of you know, if you've been around the last few weeks, uh, we are in the middle of our, our sermon series called Embodied Compassion. Some of you, this is your first time here, and so you're getting kind of in the middle of the thing, but it's good. That's all right. We've been talking about what it means for us to embody the compassion that Jesus had. And, and just to, to review a little bit, uh, the operative definition that we're using for compassion is something to this effect, um, the love that a pregnant mother feels for her child. Something of that effect. Some of us males can't identify real closely with that, but, but we can get an approximation of this love that a mother feels for her child. And, and so just that's the, the kind of the definition that we're thinking about in the back of our head. As we seek to understand how Jesus would have us not just feel compassion, right? Not just have the feeling of compassion, but actually embody that, right? How do we become like him, not just feeling compassion, but moved, with compassion. Okay, now with that preface, would you please stand for, with me as we read our sermon text this morning? And the text comes from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew in a boat to a deserted place by himself. When the crowds learned this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When Jesus arrived and saw a large crowd, he had compassion for them, and he healed those who were sick. That evening, his disciples came to him and said, This is an isolated place, and it is getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, There is no need to send them away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here except for five loaves of bread and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. 
He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took five loaves and of bread and the two fish. He looked up to heaven. He blessed them and broke the loaves apart and gave them to his disciples. And then the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate until they were full and they filled 12 baskets with the leftovers. About 5,000 men plus women and children had eaten. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So a text like this needs a little bit of context. And and so um, let me start just a few verses before where we started our reading this morning. And that's in the palace of Herod and his birthday party. Now, some of you may know this story, but let me just review it in brief for you. Herod, who was the ruler over a certain area in um, what we now know as kind of the, the... country of Israel, that general area, he he ruled over a certain part, which included Galilee, where Jesus had most of his ministry. Um, And and this Herod was not a good dude. Um, He was kind of prideful. He was kind of mean. um, And he had previously arrested the, the forebearer of Jesus, the one who had prophesied that Jesus would be coming, that the Lamb of God would come to take away the sin of the world. John the Baptist had been arrested by Herod and placed into prison. Now, Herod, when he arrested John, knew that he couldn't do anything more than arrest John because the people really, really, really liked John. Okay? Um, But John had said some bad stuff to Herod that Herod didn't like. And when you say bad stuff to the king that the king doesn't like, the king arrests you and there are repercussions. So anyway, Herod has a birthday party and and there was quite a bit of drinking and quite a bit of feasting. And and Herod's daughter um, came and danced for the crowd, the crowd, the group that were there. Now, I don't know what kind of dance this was, but it impressed the crowds and it impressed Herod quite a bit. And so Herod brought her over and he said, guess what? Anything up to, I think it's a third of my kingdom, I will give to you whatever it is that you ask, right? And he makes this vow before all of his guests, right? So, you know, drunkenness is a, is a worrisome thing in, its, in and of itself, but when you make vows when you're drunk, right, you never know what you're vowing to. And this is what happens here. Herod has placed himself on the line in a culture where honor and shame mean a lot. So, so if he breaks a vow, it's a big deal, right? Honor and shame, like to bring shame on himself by breaking a vow, is, that's currency for him. And as a ruler, you just don't do that. And so he promises this. And, and so the daughter goes away and tells her mom and says, this is what, what Herod promised me and... and And the mom says, here's what you use your wish for. The girl has a wish, and her mom says, use the wish to get John the Baptist dead, right? Tell Herod that you want his head on a platter, right? Uh, You know, if you're a kid, don't wish for that. But anyway, that's what what she convinced her her daughter to wish for. And so so she comes back to Herod. She asks for it. Now, Herod doesn't want to do this. He knows there's going to be huge repercussions among the rank and file because he has done this. And yet to save face in front of his guests... Herod obliges, cuts off the head of John the Baptist, and Jesus hears about it. And so where we are in kind of the text and the context of Scripture today is Jesus has just received word. The last place we saw Jesus was in Capernaum, um, kind of where he normally taught, and he's teaching from a boat, right? And he hears the news that John the Baptist has been killed. And the very next thing that happens is Jesus withdraws somewhere else. Now, we're not entirely sure why Jesus withdraws somewhere else, right? Right? Matthew, at the very least, does not say. Now, some would speculate that when John the Baptist had his head cut off, that's sort of a a warning, right, to any who would cross Herod. And Jesus is going to do that a lot. The powers that be, he's going to tick them off quite a bit. 
So some say that, that Jesus kind of, he's feeling the heat. He knows that things are getting a little hot and, and it's not quite time to tick everyone off yet. And so he withdraws outside of the realm that Herod has jurisdiction. Some would say that John the Baptist was known as sort of the Elijah who would announce the coming Messiah. And Jesus being that Messiah, Jesus needed to get ready, right? The time has come. Elijah's dead. It's time for the Messiah to arise and begin his public ministry, begin really the earnest job of Messiah. And so some would say that Jesus withdraws to just be by himself to pray. When you hear that someone greatly influential who you loved is dead, a lot of times you kind of want to be alone. I need to process this before I get going. We don't know. But what Jesus does is he's been teaching from a boat. So he gets in a boat and he takes a little boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. We're told, we're not told where Jesus goes specifically. So this is a guess. So don't quote me on this. Don't like say this is where he went. But this is a guess, right? Roughly where you see that star is where Capernaum was. And so it says he withdrew to the other side of the lake. So maybe he went across the lake, maybe, but somewhere outside of Herod's jurisdiction, right? So he went across to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, somewhere like there. Uh, This place would have been deserted. There's not a whole lot of people who live there. It's wilderness, it's wild, it's, it can be desert-ish the further east you go, but it's still pretty nice actually right on the coast. And so Jesus withdraws there with his disciples. It says that he gets in a boat and goes. Uh, uh, Luke will, will say when he records this kind of story that, that Jesus withdraws to a place so he can be alone. It's kind of like he has a debrief with his disciples. And so he withdraws so he can just kind of be with them, talk to them. But, but we don't have that here in Matthew. So Jesus goes across the lake. He goes in a boat and the people go on foot. So they're in Capernaum and the city's kind of around uh, Judea there or uh, Galilee there. And they make their way across along the shore to where Jesus is going. The, the way Mark, or excuse me, Matthew records it, interestingly enough, is that the cl- crowds were there when Jesus got there. Now, I don't know if boat travel was particularly slow, if they were rowing, taking a leisurely. I don't know what it is. But, but the crowds get there before. They anticipate where Jesus is going, and they're just kind of like following him along. the. And when he stops, they stop, right? And so Jesus comes, and he lands in the boat, and there's already a crowd there. There's a crowd. And, and, and we heard this from, from Sheldon last week, um, but we could probably put it in there again that, that when Jesus sees crowds, sometimes he sees them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Right, that's what we read last week when Jesus saw the crowds. I bet you it, well, I won't bet you. We shouldn't gamble. But anyway, I'm willing to bet that, um, that Jesus felt in a similar way, right? He sees the people and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. Um, that metaphor might be lost on us, but sheep without a shepherd are harassed and helpless, right? They, they're, they're not terribly smart animals and they like to be led. And so when no one leads them, they're just... Scattered, harassed, helpless, don't know what to do. I'm willing to guess that that's what Jesus feels for these crowds. As he sees them gathering together, longing for him, longing to be around him, longing to hear from him. And so we're told that Jesus has compassion on them. Right? He feels that love that a mother has for a child, um, or the, the Greek word that Sheldon was talking about, he's moved in his guts for these people. But what we see so often with Jesus here and elsewhere is that Jesus' compassion is very rarely just limited, if ever, to how he feels about something. It says he is moved with compassion and almost as if it's the same thing, which I would venture to say it is, 
says that Jesus begins to heal the sick. So people come to Jesus for lots of different reasons, but oftentimes they came because they were sick. They needed healing of, of some malady or another. It could have been sick with demon possession, as they called it. It could have been sick with, with whatever, but they came to Jesus to be healed because they knew he was a healer. And so we're told here in Matthew that Jesus heals their sick. And, and we don't know how long this goes on. <coughs> Excuse me. That was loud. <coughs> we don't know how long this went on. But presumably by what we read, like Jesus gets there and he's just healing and healing and working with the crowds and dealing with the crowds and teaching the crowds and, and, and having compassion on the crowds all day long until evening starts to come. Right? right? And, and evening in the wilderness is, is a rough place to be because there's nowhere to go in the wilderness, no shelter, there's no food in the wilderness. That's why it's a deserted place. That's why God had to feed the people with manna in the wilderness, right? Because there's nothing there. And so the disciples, I would say, are moved with their own compassion. They look at all these people and they they see these vast crowds of people, 5,000 plus, and they are moved with compassion for them and go, where are these people going to get food? I I just want to give some props to the disciples, right? They're not, they're not, we we often present them as stupid, as just not getting it. But, but really, I think in their minds, they're looking at this saying, this is going to be a problem. And we care for the people too. Like we, we want them to, to be fed. We don't want them passing out on us, right? That's not a good thing. And, and so they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, it, it's getting late. And, and, and good, good sense and, and compassion dictates that we send them away so they can get food. It, it, it's good sense, right? Most Sundays I dismiss you at 12 o'clock to go get food, right? The hungry need to be fed. We need to eat. It's good. Our bodies as well as our souls need to be nurtured. And and the disciples see this. And so they want to meet that need. They want to make that possible so that the crowds aren't compelled to stick around for just one more healing or whatever it might be. Dismiss the crowds. Let them go and get food. But Jesus has other ideas and other plans. The disciples are thinking like send them to Piggly Wiggly or whatever. But Jesus has other plans. Jesus has other thoughts in mind. In fact, what Jesus says is, we don't need to send them away. You feed them. We don't need to send them away. I want you to do it. We've got food enough right here, is what essentially Jesus says to his disciples. What the disciples are thinking, however, is, that's crazy. We don't have enough. Jesus, did you really see the size of the crowds? 5,000 people is a lot. I, I have fed lots of people in my time. I've worked in commercial kitchens. I've fed large groups. But I can't even begin to conceptualize how to feed 5,000 people. Like, I, 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 if you were to ask me to put together a shopping list to feed 5,000 people, plus women and children, I'm lost, right? I wouldn't know where to start. And the disciples, smart guys as they were, capable people as they were, they were not cooks. And they certainly didn't know where to get enough food for 5,000 people. And they certainly didn't have it enough with them. Again, Matthew is sort of terse in his description of this, but, but Luke and John will talk about the disciples saying, Jesus, there's not enough food in all the villages to get all that. And we couldn't afford it anyway. How are we going to feed them? But here, they just say, Jesus, I want, I just, we've done an inventory. We've taken stock 
right? We, we have done a strengths-based assessment on our, on our food stores here. And Jesus, we've got five loaves and two fish, but that won't feed us, let alone them. But Jesus says something curious. If he doesn't say it out loud, it, it's implied. It's enough. Give them to me. It's enough. Give them to me. And so we're told that Jesus takes these five loaves and two fish, and they were probably not big loaves. They were like snack loaves, right? We're not talking baguettes. He says, give them to me. And so Jesus does something. He takes them and he breaks the bread and he offers a prayer. Something to the effect of blessed are you, our Lord, who brings grain from the ground, right? Who gives us bread, who feeds us. And he gives it back to his disciples and he says, distribute it. In my mind, Jesus says, just continue to give it out until it gives out. Right? I I don't know how this worked. I have a hard time imagining it. But in my mind, Jesus, he just... All right, we've got 12 disciples, you know, go two by two, whatever you need to do, here you go. Just pass it out until you have no more to pass out. Right? Simple as that. Just pass it out. And the disciples are thinking, yeah, it's going to give out soon. Of course, what we're told is that as the disciples begin to distribute the bread and make their way through the crowds, for some reason, somehow, in some way, miraculously speaking, the food doesn't give out. That after the disciples get done, everyone has had enough to eat. Now, now some will say that what happens here is that, you know, the disciples' generosity of giving their meals uh, spurred other people to be generous and share with one another. And that's great. That's miraculous. But, but that's not what we're told. We're basically told that the five loaves and two fishes were enough. In fact, we're also told that the five loaves and two fishes were not simply enough, but that G, the disciples collected 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, do the math. Five loaves, two fish, probably wouldn't fill a single basket. Half hour, hour, hour and a half later, 12 baskets left. Well, that is math that doesn't work in any conception of ours. God has done something. God has done something in this through the disciples. God has done something in this through Jesus this meager offering, this not enoughness has become not just enough, but more than enough for the need that is there. Jesus chooses to embody compassion in such a way that does not simply minister minister to the spiritual needs of people, right? He does not, in effect, say to them, bless you, be at peace, go away hungry. He says, I will hear those sicknesses and I will feed you now, that's miraculous enough, but, but we ought to look behind this and, and remember that, that what Jesus has come to announce is that the kingdom of God has drawn near. Right? So, so Jesus' message everywhere he went, when he spoke, it was, the kingdom of God has come near you. Or the kingdom of God, sometimes he says, is here. And we're told that when Jesus did that and preached that message, oftentimes, if not always, it was combined with healing and feeding. And that's not accidental. 
Because when we hear about the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God, one of the things we read about in the prophets, and, and if we're to read ahead a little bit into Revelation, we read that part of the mark of the kingdom of God is that the, the hungry are filled. The sick are healed. The deaf hear, right? The, the, the dead are raised. Like all sorts of things like that. We hear that over and over in the prophets and, and we will continue to hear that over and over until the end in Revelation that we read that, that the kingdom of God is marked by these actions of God providing for God's people. Even when Jesus is talked about by Mary and by Simeon, we hear the words that what Jesus comes and when the kingdom of God comes, the Messiah comes, the, the world is upended. And there is enough. People are healed, not just spiritually, not just sins forgiven. That's great, and that's good, and that is wonderful and awesome by itself. But, but there is needs met. The kingdom of God is marked by these types of things. But, but what I want to, to note about this particular passage is that as Jesus says to the disciples, right, you feed them. He doesn't say, I'll feed them. He doesn't even say, what do you got? He says, you feed them. And they do what we often do when God asks us to do things we think are beyond our limits and beyond our resources. We say, God, we don't have enough. See, this is, I, I don't have much change in my pocket, right? God, I'm not a millionaire. And what happens is Jesus takes what they have and says, that's enough. He blesses it. And I think this is important. He gives it back to them and says, now go and distribute it until there's nothing left. And then they find that what they had coming through the hands of Jesus is enough and more than enough for the need at hand. In the hands of Jesus, our not enough becomes more than enough. If you're like me, you, you often live in this, in this idea of scarcity, that there's just not enough. I, I, mean, I mean, how often do I see a need out there and say, God, I, I just don't have the money for that, or I don't have the resources for that. And I'm not saying we meet every need that we see. We, we can't. But when Jesus says to us, you feed them, there is no excuse. More, I don't have enough is not the answer. Because when Jesus says, you feed them, you do this, you do that, guess what? In the hands of Jesus, blessed by Jesus, the meager amounts we have become more than enough. I bet you there's more than one story in here of I don't have enough and God provides. A meager offering becomes more than enough. God says, do this. And all of a sudden, I don't know where that money came from, but it's here. I, I suspect some of you could give testimony to a time when not enough became more than enough. Why? Because it was and pass through the hands of Jesus first. I, I truly believe the resources we have are given to us by Jesus that we might allow him to bless them and allow them to pass through our hands. 
I believe that, that when we look out and we see it's not enough, it's not enough people, it's not enough money, whatever, 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 if Jesus asks us, there will always be enough. And it may not be obvious at the time, right? Jesus took five loaves and two fish, and I believe he blessed five loaves and two fish and gave back to the disciples five loaves and two fish. And just said, give it out. When it's gone, it's gone. And yet it didn't go away. Like it, it, did, it just never was gone. How did it happen? Well, it's a miracle. But because in the kingdom of God, what we think is not enough in the hands of Christ is always enough and indeed more than enough. If we believe that we serve the God of the universe, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as the psalmist tells us, then surely we believe God can provide where God has called. You feed them, Jesus says. If Jesus says you feed them, it will always be enough. Because he provides. Sometimes he provides for others through us. That's the case here. Jesus provided for this multiple thousands of people through his disciples, through their resources, because in his hands, their resources are always enough. And so we might look around our community and, and say, God, there's so many needs out there. And there are. How are we to embody this type of compassion? Jesus, we're, we're not a huge church. We don't have a huge budget. If you sat in on some of our board meetings lately, you know this. Jesus, it doesn't seem like we have enough, but if Jesus has called us, it will always be enough. It may not come back to us super abundantly, but it will always be enough to meet the need God has called us to meet. It may not be monetary, right? We may not be able to meet every monetary need. We've tried and it, we can't. But that's not the only resource that we have. Your money is not the only resource you have. In fact, for many of us, what's more valuable than our money is our time. We have that resource. And when Jesus says, go and do, it is more than enough. And there are many out there who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And we can and we should preach the good news of the kingdom of God, salvation in Jesus Christ. But that message for Jesus and for the early church and for the church for most of its history has always been coupled with or inseparable from our acts of compassion. To tell someone about Jesus is an act of compassion and love. But nearly always, and I'm pretty sure it's always in Christ and in the early church, that message is paired with tangible acts. For the kingdom of God is not just spirit. The kingdom of God comes as, as the people of God begin to embody and begin to live the character of God, the compassion of God. So that we become, uh, as a people and as a group, reflections of God's goodness to the world around us. <laughs> If you were in Sunday school this morning, we heard that, that the humanity, that 
the, the Adam, the, the original male and female were made in the image of God. And, and however that has been cracked and marred, we still in Christ can be restored in that image of God and reflect the image of God to the world. We are not God. When people see us, they should not think we're God. But when people see us and the way that we live and speak in the world, they should see a glimpse of a God who loves them, who cares for them. The kingdom of God at work, not just bringing good news, but being good news to the sick, to the hungry, to the suffering. By acts, tangible acts of compassion. You may not know this, but we have several ways around this church that if this is what God is asking you to do, we have ways of embodying this. We have fish once a month. Fish, for those of you who don't know, is a food distribution, right? We have a group that comes here and puts together 30-some-odd boxes of food for people who need it. And, and that is supported by, by our community, but that is also supported by gifts, both monetary and food-wise, from you. What we have to give away, in a large part, comes from what you give. So first of all, that is an opportunity. Second of all, I just want to say thanks, because you have been giving. Thank you. Last week, it was really, really cold around here. Some of you may have noticed. We uh, were able to open a cold weather shelter during the day, just a place for people to come and to be warm during the day, because we have a building that was far warmer than the zero degrees outside. It was a way in which several people were able to come together and say, we want to have compassion and we may not have a whole lot of money, but there's some space that's relatively warm compared to outside that we can let people sit for the day. We were able to do that. In in fact, Rennell got on the ball before the city did. I don't want to brag a whole lot, but I'm going to brag a little. Rennell called me, moved with compassion for people who were literally freezing outside. Not enough becomes more than enough when we are called by Jesus and when our resources are blessed by him. There's lots of other ways to get involved. There's lots of ways to feed. There's lots of ways to visit. The act of compassion, what you have, may just be a kind word to someone who is in this building today. What you have to give may be a kind word for someone who's not in the building today that you're thinking about. You say, well, my words saying I miss them is not enough. In the hands of Jesus, it's more than enough. It can make the difference for somebody's day. But as we begin to embody the love and the care and the kingdom of God and the compassion of Christ in these ways, not enough becomes more than enough. And perhaps more, we begin to reflect the character of God to a world that desperately needs to know that God loves them, that God cares for them. We can have compassion, but that is just teeny compared to the love and compassion of God for the world. And so as we begin to embody it a little bit, that little bit of love 
might just enable someone to experience the love that's beyond everything else from the Father. In the hands of Jesus, not enough becomes more than enough. I don't know what's in your metaphorical pockets today. And I don't know what God is calling you all to. Right? Jesus said, you feed them. And when Jesus says, you feed them, that's our symbol. That's our sign. It doesn't matter how much I have or how little I have. If Jesus asked me to do it, Jesus will make a way for it to happen. And my meager resources become more than enough. The church's meager resources become more than enough for a world that desperately needs to know and to feel the compassion of God embodied in God's people. Sometimes our compassion opens someone up to the spirit. Makes them a little softer to hear the call of God to follow me. Our lives, corporately and individually, ought to in some way embody, not just in word but in deed, this compassion that God has for the world around us. And not for our own sake, but so that those acts might perhaps lead someone back to the feet of the one who cares more than I ever could, Jesus Christ. And, and I just want to give a caveat. It, it may not be here. Jesus might lead someone to himself and be complete. We might never know about it, but guess what? Our glory was never the point anyway. His glory is. Our job is not to make disciples for Mike or to Sheldon. Our job is not to make disciples of the church of the Nazarene. That would be nice. Our job, our highest call is make disciples of Jesus. I like the church of the Nazarene. That's why I'm here. I like Sheldon. That's why we hired him. But guess what? Sheldon's not ultimate. Church of the Nazarene may go away. I hope it doesn't, but it may. Jesus is the person we want to introduce others to, however that happens. And so we embody. We allow Jesus to call us and say, you feed them. And though we may balk at the beginning and say, Jesus, this is what's in my pocket. I've got an iPhone and nothing. Guess what Jesus says? It's enough. Give it to me. Let me bless it. I'll give it back to you and it will be enough. In fact, it will be more than enough. Because Jesus is enough. In fact, Jesus is more than enough. We believe that ultimately when everything else is stripped away, where our life resides and where our life is insured is not in the food we eat or the water we drink. It's not in our possessions, not in our bank account. It's not in anything other than in the life and death of Jesus Christ. And as those who have pledged ourselves to him wholly and completely, we believe that he will meet every need because he has already gone to the ends of the earth, to death itself, that we might find life in his name, that we might be renewed in relationship with him, and that we might discover what it's like to live in the abundant grace of God. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to draw to a close by celebrating communion together.
Because we might even say, like, Jesus, how are you going to save humanity? And he says, well, you've got me. And we might say, that's not enough, right? Jesus, we need some armies. We need some Armageddon. We need all sorts of other things, right? We, we need the, right? Make things right. And Jesus says, no, I will offer myself, my broken body and my shed blood. And that is not just enough. That is salvation for the world. And so as we take this meal together, that is what we declare. We declare that he is more than enough. That salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to us by which we must be saved. That we cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps enough, and we cannot do enough good things. That only the broken body and shed blood of Jesus will restore us to relationship with Almighty God. And we find that our meager resources are not just enough, but in his hands they're more than enough. Just some instructions before we get started today with this. You don't need to be a member of the Church of the Nazarene to receive communion with us. We practice what's called open communion, which just means that all you need is to desire the life that Jesus gives in his death and resurrection There's no magic about it. But we believe that in this meal, God provides to us grace. And God reminds us that he is more than enough. And that whether you're taking it for the first time or the thousand and first time, we declare Christ's death until he comes. And we believe that he is more than enough. So as, when I finish and praying and call everyone up, um, most of you know this, but we're going to come down this aisle. So wherever you are, if you go around the back or come through the chairs and come down this aisle, uh, Land and I will serve you right here. We'll give you bread and we'll give you the, the cup. And then if you go back to your seats that way, that way we just avoid traffic jams. Okay? And then once we've all been served and once you're all back in your seats, um, we will take communion together for this is an act of the whole church. Um, if, if you're a person who has limited mobility, um, you are free to stay in your seat. Just raise your hand when we're done, and, and we will come and we'll bring something to you um, so that you don't have to worry about mobility coming up here and falling or getting involved in tangled in anything else. Remember that Jesus is more than enough and that in his hands our eager resources are more than enough, for he takes them and he blesses them. And what he has called us to do, he will always give us the resources to accomplish. This communion supper was instituted by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as a sacrament, which proclaims his life, his sufferings, his sacrificial death and resurrection, and the hope of his coming again. It shows forth the Lord's death until he returns. The supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the Spirit, It is to be received in reverent appreciation and gratefulness for the work of Jesus Christ. All those who are truly repentant, forsaking their sins, and believing in Christ for salvation are invited to participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. We come to the table that we might be renewed in life and salvation, and that we might be made one in the Spirit. 
And so in the unity with the church, we confess our faith that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. Let us pray. Holy God, we gather here at this, your table, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who by your spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, he fed the hungry, and he ate with sinners. He established the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And so we live in the hope of his coming again. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks. He gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we gather here as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to you, Lord God, in praise and in thanksgiving. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts. Lord, that you would make them be for us by the power of your spirit, the body and blood of Christ, that we might be the body of Christ who are redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one in Christ, one with each other, and one in the ministry of Christ to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.